0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayborn, and today I'm joined by Dara Conduit. Dara is an Associate Research Fellow in the Faculty of Arts and Education at the Alfred Deakin Institute. She's the author of a truly wonderful book, The Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, published by Cambridge and it came out uh, about six weeks ago, I believe. She's also written on Syria... Islamist movements and Iran and so I'm really looking forward to talking with Dara about her work today Dara, thank you so much for joining us
1: Thank you for having me
0: It's a pleasure, I'm really looking forward to this So um, just before we get started can you confirm, when did this come out?
1: (laughs) Uh I think it was August 1st, okay. the, the date of all the horses' birthdays in Australia.
0: Well, that's that's a question for a different <laughs> podcast, I think, but I've never heard of that. I'm very intrigued, but maybe we'll follow up off air. Um, Dara, you've written this wonderful book. I've read it. It's fascinating. It's really rich. But how did you get interested in, in the Middle East in Syria, and Syria and the Muslim Brotherhood?
1: it's been a a long journey as I guess most of us by the time you get out the other end of a PhD Um, I I guess I became interested in the Middle East in general I came of age um, as the US invaded Iraq um, and Australia was a key part of that coalition. So I think even from that that stage onwards is when I started being interested in the Middle East. Um, we were at high school and the, the major project we had to do in year 12, or in the final year of school, um, was to debate this topic. And it just seemed so easy. It was so obvious to me that this invasion shouldn't happen, that it was, um, you know, Saddam Hussein was one of the most violent leaders in the Middle East, But, you know, it was so obvious that the humanitarian cost would be enormous and that it was never going to be as simple as going in and toppling a dictator and walking away. Um, But I was struck that I was in a minority in my class that thought this. You know, my friends, everyone was social progressives and everything, but um, they didn't agree. But I also quickly became aware that I didn't have the language to express what I wanted to say and I couldn't understand you know, the issues like human uh, international law and that sort of thing. It was just too complex for me to debate. So um, that became my starting point, just a desire to understand the complexity of the world, I guess. Amazing.
0: Um,
1: and so, I, yeah, it was it was quite a learning curve, I've yeah. got to be honest with you. Um, I but after I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I moved to Syria as uh, all grid. Uh, students of the Middle East did back then it was just before the war it was in 2010 Um, and you know I was one of those thousands of lucky students who were fortunate enough to cycle through the University of Damascus learning Arabic and it was such a I guess a formative time for me Um, and I hadn't really I hadn't expected that I would continue to work on Syria while I was there Um, I actually went to St Andrew's afterwards to do my master's and I, I ended up applying a post-structuralist lens to Iranian foreign policy. Right. Um, but when it came to a PhD topic, this just, it jumped out at me.
0: Amazing. So just to, to go into that in a little bit more detail, your your undergraduate degree was in politics, international relations?
1: Yeah, yeah, with a focus on Middle East.
0: Okay, fantastic. As much
1: as one can do in Australia.
0: Right, so that was in Australia, and then you moved to yes. sunny Scotland.
1: I moved to sunny Scotland in what was the coldest year of my entire life. I <laughs> will never
0: forget it. <laughs> I think anyone who's been to St Andrews will certainly share those those uh, yeah. <laughs> sentiments. So, at that point, you you were working on Iran and post structuralism, but but the spectre of Syria continued to loom large.
1: It did. It did. Um, when I was in Syria, I was sort of struck. You know, I, I knew a bit about Syrian history at that point, and obviously, I knew about the role of. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood in it so I had a keen eye for that kind of thing when I was in Syria and I was quite struck by its absence from life. you know you could wander through the seats of Hama or um, you know anywhere in in the country and life appeared to be normal. I mean of course it wasn't you know that city had been destroyed and you know parts of it not rebuilt and the human scars run deep but as an outsider or even as a, a you know a young Syrian whose parents had protected them from that, part of history, you know, it was like this massive part of history had been all but erased. So I sort of was always very interested in that. Um, But when it came time to write my PhD, it was uh, 2013, so we were two years into the Syrian uprising at that point. Right. And, uh, you know, the Brotherhood had been on the eve of the 2011 uprising, the best known and the best organised opposition, and it was sort of expected to inherit, um, you know, the opposition after that. And even two years in, it was quite clear that that wasn't the case, that things weren't working out for the Muslim Brotherhood the way they'd hoped. Um, And so when I started to look into it, I was struck by a few things. I was struck by the polarization of narratives on the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, people either thought that the Muslim Brotherhood was this terrible, dogmatic, violent group that, you know, would destroy the Syrian opposition, or, um, you know, there's this sense that it was this democratic group that hadn't done anything particularly wrong, you know, it had been led in the wrong direction, but really it was a, it was a force for good, and there wasn't much in between, so I was sort of, um, you know, fascinated by this and really wanted to understand what what it is that the Brotherhood was.
0: Amazing. So, where was the PhD?
1: That was at Monash University, also in Melbourne. I, uh, I'd intended to actually stay at the UK in the UK, but I came home following a family emergency, and I uh, came home and I couldn't believe how sunny it was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. After a
1: year of not seeing sunshine, I thought, "No, I'm not going to be able to go back to that."
0: Yeah, well, that's entirely understandable. As the temperatures plummet (laughs) here, I long for a bit of sunshine. But uh, (laughs) it's good to know that... We have
1: 27 degrees and blue skies today. It's magnificent.
0: (laughs) Stop it. Please stop it. (laughs) So, uh, Dara, your your time in Syria, uh, can you just tell us... A few things about memories from that time. I mean, it, it's an interesting time to be in Syria, just before everything um, everything got so incredibly contested and heated and violent. And what, what are your abiding memories of that that time in Syria?
1: Um, yeah, look, it was it was an amazing time. In, in Syria for me, obviously not for a lot of people, but, uh, you know, I was introduced to a country that's got such a rich culture and such warm people, um, and it, it's such a magnificent country, so, uh, you know, it, it was a really, um, you know, a formative time for me, but, uh, you know, to the outsider, you know, it was very difficult to see that anything was awry. I mean, you could see some things like um, there were new developments like Sham City Centre or some of the cafes around the Four Seasons, which were, you know, frequented by the ultra-wealthy, but it was quite clear that, you know, most of Syrian society had no access to that. Yeah. And there was a lot of development as well. Um, But overtly, you know, there was nothing to, certainly to me, that I could see, At the time and i don't think most outsiders could um you know politically it was an incredibly closed society this is one of the the issues that came to the fore in 2011 um but you know as a as an outsider there i was also being very closely watched so i never felt the need to talk to people about politics in syria because i kind of felt that as a student who had all manner of passport privileges it wasn't really worth putting people at risk yeah. um so i didn't go looking for it but um you know i, th- I think to most outsiders it, it wasn't that obvious obviously now we look back we can see how deep-seated those issues are you know we look at the the economic indicators and um you know speak to to people about that time but at the time that that just wasn't something that was accessible to those of us sure. outside
0: i guess that that makes a lot of sense um, you started the PhD then, and when you started the PhD, was it always your intention to focus on the brotherhood, or was it was it more an interest in in the uprisings in Syria or Islamist movements? Where was your focus at that point?
1: Actually, it was pretty much the same the whole way through. I was lucky in that I, um, you know, from the outset had quite a clear PhD topic and focus, so it never really shifted. Uh, I was obviously, I was really interested in the uprising, but, I mean, you all know from supervising PhD students yourself that it's quite dangerous to focus, to write an entire PhD on a, uh, you know, a a moment of time that continues to unfold. Yeah. Uh, So my PhD, I I felt got the right balance there. I was able to, my my research question was something like, um, what does uh, the history of the Muslim Brotherhood tell us about the group's... um, interactions in the 2011 uprising so I was able to spend you know half my time looking backwards and half my time looking forwards and I think that was that made it easier I think it would be really difficult to write a project from 2011 onwards
0: yeah of course of course and I think what gives your your book such such depth and such analytical gravitas is is that sort of location within history the tracing the group back to its origins and its evolution across the, the Syrian experience which is in many ways dramatically different to other incarnations of the Kwan across the region.
1: Yeah it's certainly it's the product of it's the very unique experience that it has had in um, in Syria and it is a Syrian group as a result very much so.
0: Yeah so let, let's go into the book, Dara, if if that's okay. For the, anyone who's not read it yet, can you just give us a bit of an overview in terms of what what it is that you're trying to do and and how you went about doing it, please? And then we'll go into the arguments after that.
1: Okay, so I um you know based on these sorts of problems that I highlighted before about the brotherhood's failure to. Um, you know, I guess rehabilitate itself after 2011, um, this polarising of narratives in the Brotherhood and this centrality of violence. I talk about it in a, a paper that I published in the Middle East Journal. I call it the the Hamas spectacle, um, which is, uh, you know, every time that, you know, a journalist or anyone would refer to the Muslim Brotherhood, they would say, you know, oh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria is the most prominent uh, you know opposition group it was involved in violence in the 1980s and it was sort of th- this was sort of seen as the um, you know the the most important moment in the brotherhood's history and sort of this reflexive thing everybody would, would look back to mm. um, so I use that as my starting point to work out how um, you know to sort of say well who is the Muslim Brotherhood and how relevant is that history and is that history of violence to to who the group is today soon after i started my phd Raphael LeFebvre published his book on the brotherhood which was <laughs> a really good
0: yeah
1: um book and um you know so it I wasn't alone in that which was which made things easier uh and i went lot al- around because it hadn't n- nobody had published between you know other than Raphael at the time there was an awful lot of primary source material that just hadn't been hadn't been looked at so i undertook um interviews with brotherhood members i looked across um factions the brotherhood has historically been quite factionalized i argue in the the book that it's not so relevant now i mean the biggest divide in the brotherhood right now is its generational divide i think mm-hmm. um and i spoke to loads of former brotherhood members so people that had left the group in frustration i spoke to a lot of members of um, you know, the Brotherhood's been in exile for 30 years. I spoke to a lot of people who had grown up in Brotherhood families, so in exiled families, but weren't members themselves, but were sort of closely acquainted with Brotherhood politics because their parents would have been members. And I spoke to a lot of um, Syrian opposition figures as well who had interacted in the Brotherhood in some way. So basically, anyone I could speak to, anyone that was willing to talk to me about the Brotherhood, sure. I, uh, I spoke to. Um, and I also undertook extensive analysis of the Brotherhood's historical and contemporary documents. So, you know, there are loads of letters and memoirs and that sort of thing that people haven't really had a chance to look at so far. So I spent an awfully long time, um, you know, reading these long members, memoirs. I'm not sure if you've read a lot of memoirs of, um, you know, political leaders in the Middle East, but they tend to be quite long. <laughs>
0: um, you yeah.
1: know, probably, you know, an abridged version would probably be helpful at times so with some of them. Um, but, yeah, those and also archival material, basically whatever I could find on the Brotherhood because there was so little that had been done in the last three decades.
0: Amazing. Yeah, you're certainly right about the, the garrulous nature of, of some of these memoirs.
1: Um, <laughs> <Dari>. <laughs> they really break the spirits after
0: a while. Yeah, yeah, it can do. Dara, the, the interviews that you did, can you say a little bit about where those were, those were undertaken, please? <laughs>
1: Um, yeah. So the Brotherhood is an exile group. It's been in exile formally since 1980, and a lot of its uh, leaders, members, mem- and members have been out of the country since before that point. Uh, so, thankfully, I didn't need to do interviews in Syria. Australian uh, ethics committees are notorious in this regard, and there's no way that would be
0: <laughs> permitted.
1: Sure. Um, so, uh, across Europe and Turkey, I did interviews.
0: Fantastic. So, exiled diasporic members of the
1: yeah, yeah, which was, um, you know, work. You know, obviously there there are problems with that, and there would be questions related to that in in many research projects. But because of the nature of the brotherhood, uh, you know, it it had very little left inside Syria. So that I guess supported my my choice of methods.
0: Sure, quite yeah. strongly. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I want to get on to to Hama and Homs in a in a little bit, if I may, because I think that that spectre of Hama that you talk about is so, so interesting in in many different ways. But can you just explore a little bit about the the roots of the Brotherhood in Syria, then, and and how did it evolve in the formative stages of the of the organisation?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the Brotherhood started in the the mid to late forties in Syria. I mean, it was it came from similar. Roots, You know, there were, um, you know, friendship links with the Egyptian Brotherhood. But very quickly, it was in a different, you know, it grew up in a different context uh, and had a very different social base as well. The, the Syrian Brotherhood was never a mass movement in any way, it always recruited from um, merchants and, um, you know, the intellectual classes. So it was always, always going to be limited in the kind of social base that it could attract and also in the kind of politics that it would carry out. It was always even back in the in the 40s and 50s, it was quite a status quo party. You know, it was, uh, you know, some of the language that it used was, you know, deeply critical of the system, but there was no way it was going to overthrow the system. You know, its its members and its leaders very much benefited from the economic arrangements at the time. Mm. Um, it participated in the parliament basically from its first couple of years and some of its leaders were, were involved in that. In fact... Uh, I think the first three leaders of the Brotherhood were all in Parliament. So it wasn't just that it sort of did this thing on the side or, if, or it let some of its members have uh, get involved in Parliament. It was integrally involved and it was sanctioned by its leaders. So sort of from the beginning, the Brotherhood has had this engagement with democracy and democratic thought that many other uh, Islamist movements have struggled with. It's just rarely been a question in the Brotherhood, the um, legitimacy of participating in the secular state. Right. That made it quite unique, I think.
0: Yeah, certainly. And how does that evolve over time then? I mean, obviously it, it ended with the exile of the group, but, but was there a, an evolution in some of these, these strategies and some of these perceptions within the group itself?
1: So the Brotherhood, I mean, even back in in its early days, it was quite a diverse movement because it was always, because of the nature of its base, it always, people used it as a vehicle for their interests. It always had this sort of individualist streak. So there was always quite a bit of diversity and thinking in the Brotherhood. Um, You know, it was never going to be a mass class party or something like that. And uh, with time, particularly after 1963, after the, the bath came into... Power, you know, these voices sort of, you know, became louder. So very early on, particularly among the group's youth, there was there were calls for violence against the regime. Uh, The Brotherhood's leaders refused that quite stubbornly for another. Um, nearly two decades. But over time, you know, there was more and more frustration, particularly as the, the Brotherhood's leadership's strategy of nonviolence and strategy of, um, you know, limited engagement failed. It, you know, it didn't bear fruit. Uh, and in, after, uh, you know, some years there was a, a splinter under um, Marwan Hadid and uh, you know, which splintered into the fighting vanguard, which sort of be- became the the major armed group right. uh, prior to the Brotherhood becoming violent as well.
0: That's one of the the main things that I've taken out of the book, Dara. That, that there's such schisms and difference and a plurality of views within this this group that is often perhaps inaccurately held to be a, a relatively monolithic organization, but scratching beneath the, the surface of these assumptions as as you do, and you get such tension, such a fractious organization.
1: Yeah, it's always been quite fractious. And I think sometimes we look at, at groups like this from the outside. And the Brotherhood, even in after 2011, it was criticized for um, and has always been criticized for giving inconsistent opinions like if you asked one person one thing and then you ask someone else you know the same thing they give different answers and they've always been criticized that as seen as there's this sort of malicious you know they're pursuing this this secret um you know agenda that we that we're not quite aware of um but I think You know, in some ways that speaks to its organisational health, the fact that there is a diversity of opinions. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you'd expect in political movements all over the world. And I think we forget that lens when we're looking at Islamist movements. We we expect them to be these monoliths and they're not.
0: Yeah. And that was that was my real take home. Just that emphasis of of difference and fraction and dissent within the organisation.
1: Um, yeah, and I mean, sometimes that dissent has been, you know, has been advocating violence or has been sure. ab- advocating sectarianism or, you know, I'm not saying that dissent has been a force for good in the brotherhood.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, But course. certainly
1: in the contemporary movement, you know, it, it's in some ways a sign of its, its economic health and economic, its organisational health.
0: Sure, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Can we talk a little bit about, about Hamma then? And, mm-hmm. and the ensuing events that happened afterwards I mean, in your in your middle east journal piece you talk about the the specter of hama and i think you you're certainly right to say that there is this this specter over over the the brotherhood yeah. Yeah. and syria when we when we talk about hama and we talk about the brotherhood the the legacy of those events continue to to resonate i guess in in our understanding of the group but is that, is that fair to say? Should we be doing that? And and maybe if you could just tell us a bit about Hama from the more, more nuanced and more aware, someone who's actually spent time looking at this in detail.
1: OK, so, um, you know, the Hama uprising, it, it took place after... Uh, almost two years after the Brotherhood had formally sanctioned violence against the Syrian regime. And it needs to be understood in the context of a country which was you know, experiencing sporadic uprisings To Hama itself had been under on and off um, uh, you know, military occupation in the years prior. Uh, you know, so things have been really tense, and this had been a popular... Uprising across the country, you know, there have been huge strikes by shopkeepers and, uh, you know, merchants and that sort of thing. So, you know, it, this didn't come out of nowhere, mm. this uh, this violence. Um, I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to know exactly what happened in Hama. Certainly the Syrian government is never going to acknowledge what has happened in full. Uh, and the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood as well, I don't think, will ever uh, you know, be fully frank, and I mean, some members of the Brotherhood that I spoke to continue to deny any involvement in it. Right. Um, what we do know is that it started on the evening of second of February, nineteen eighty-two. It's not entirely clear what happened, but uh, there had, you know, Brotherhood members had been planning sort of their last stand in Hama at the time, um, alongside fighting Vanguard members that is uh, the Syrian regime had been cracking down on them quite significantly and they'd sort of been picking them off one by one. So, you know, they were getting closer to being found. So they had been planning something, Um, but something happened on this evening and they were discovered. And this, uh, this led to the declaration of an uprising. Um, You know, and Brotherhood members, it's not clear how many members there were. Estimates uh, that I found were between 20 and 300 members inside the city of Hama. Right. Um, There were also fighting vanguards members and civilians who took up arms. So it's not entirely sure how many were there. Um, The uprising began, the Syrian government... Uh, closed off the city, closed off all roads into the city and cut off telephone lines um, and began to besiege the city. And over the next three weeks, uh, between, say, 5 and 25,000 people were killed, including a 1,000 government forces. Um, I'm not sure when the Brotherhood found out about this. It seems to me that it was several days before they found out the Brotherhood's leaders were in exile at that point and because Hama was completely closed off, it was very difficult for them, for the outside world to find out. I mean, the outside world didn't find out for about a week either. Uh, so once they found out about it, they mobilised in in Baghdad uh, in in camps supported by Saddam Hussein, and they put out their, uh, the call for people, to for Brotherhood members to gather in Baghdad to go into Syria, but they never entered. You know, by the time they'd sort of gotten organised, they, uh, you know, the the Battle of Hama was over, you know, thousands and thousands were dead. And, uh, you know, entire quarters of the city had been destroyed and they called it off. And I've got, there's a couple of quotes in my book about this couple of, I think, quite powerful quotes about brother, uh, by. Brotherhood members that were in those camps and about this sort of sense of emotion, you know, these guys had been in these camps and they'd, they'd given up everything, you know, they could no longer go back to Syria because their uh, association with the Brotherhood had meant that that would never be safe for them to do again. And, you know, they were, they were in these camps and they were ready to go. And then out of nowhere, the Brotherhood called it off. They said, this is just not possible. This uprising is not going to happen. And just sort of left them be. And this um, this one member in particular talks about his, uh, you know, the head of his his group just crying because you know he, you know, the cost that he, that he was now going to pay because he could no longer go home. He had no, there was no chance that the brotherhood was going to succeed. And just this sense of emotion afterwards.
0: Yeah. That wow. they'd lost. So powerful, as you say, really powerful. Dara, why do you think this this Series of events and and the devastation at Hama continues to haunt Syria and, and the Brotherhood. As you say, the specter of Hama. Why do you think that is?
1: So I mean, it it haunts the reputation of the Brotherhood. Uh, and you know, the after the after 1982, you know, the Brotherhood was pretty much, you know, there was there was pretty much no sign of the Brotherhood in Syria after that point. You know, there was some sporadic violence, but nothing on a large scale, which gave the the regime a pretty much a clear hand to rewrite history as it felt inclined, and so it was able to build the Brotherhood as this all-purpose sort of bogeyman against um you know to which syrians must be aware so uh you know the consequences of that were that the narrative on the brotherhood would forever be tarnished by this and i mean these are things some of this government narrative on the brotherhood i would hear among opposition figures too like you know it's sort of right, okay you know we know that narratives can become truth and we know that they do um you know become quite deeply ingrained uh but, I mean, it's also the experience of Hammer has also catastrophically impacted the brotherhood too. You know, it was this group that was in the in the 40s and 50s. It was in parliament. It was never a particularly successful group in parliament, but it was nonetheless, you know, a, a member of the parliament. Um, you know, and it had pledged non-violence, and then, uh, you know, because of the way it had mismanaged its its relationship with its, uh, you know, its base, and it mismanaged its relationship with the regime, it had ended up involved in this massacre, which was, at the time, one of the most violent single incidents, or most deadly single incidents of violence in the Middle East. Mm. Um, and so this this sent this. Like, you know, it's never been able to work out how that happened, when, it, where it went wrong. There's been this huge sense in the Brotherhood that, um, you know, to deny it, and there's also there are certain Brotherhood members that have been blamed, former leaders who have been blamed for what went wrong, uh, you know, who were forced out of the group. So the Brotherhood's never really had the reckoning that it needed to have to understand what went wrong and how can we prevent this happening again. And so it meant that when it came for, to the uprising in 2011, it when it came to questions of violence, it became paralysed. It could not make decisions because it still couldn't understand what had happened previously.
0: Sure. When you talk about the uprisings then, what was the, the Brotherhood's role, given this paralysis that you identify and given the, the various schisms in the group and given that it was uh, largely in exile? What role did, did the Brotherhood play in the events of 2011 and, and afterwards?
1: So the Brotherhood itself didn't play a massive role in the beginning of the uprising on the ground or anything like that because it just didn't have the supporters on the ground, to be honest. Um, Some Brotherhood leaders, I spoke a bit before about how the Brotherhood, has this individualist streak it always has so its members are always members of the brotherhood but they also pursue their own interests this has always been the case and so um you know a lot of brotherhood members went off and approached the the Syrian uprising on their own accord as well particularly when it became clear that the brotherhood leadership wasn't willing or able to respond um so there were certain Brotherhood members who were very involved in, uh, you know, some of the Facebook groups at the beginning of the uprising and that sort of thing. So while the Brotherhood as a a group was not formally involved in its early days, certainly Brotherhood members were. Right. Um, And then... It was, once the uprising began, it was able to respond really strongly to the uprising because it had this this organisational history and this structure, which meant that it could respond. It had, you know, it had resources, it had members, it had a paid leadership, and it had skills, you know, like, um, you know, it understood what it was supposed to be doing. It, within a couple of weeks of the leadership, Ali Bayanuni, who was uh, head of the Shura Council, you know, was writing an article in the Guardian. Now, you don't write an article in the Guardian if you're writing for Syrians. You know, he was writing to the international diplomatic community. Yeah. So they understood audience. They understood how to how to engage with the internet with international politics. Um, I spoke to one member of the Syrian opposition who said, "You don't understand." You know, at the beginning when we were trying to negotiate these you know, the formation of these exile opposition bodies, you know, we, sometimes we'd have three three meetings taking place in parallel at the same time. And he said, the Brotherhood, they had so many people that they could stay in those meetings. So there was always a Brotherhood representative in all of those meetings, whereas the rest of us, you know, we were busy running between three meetings at once and, you know, we were missing things and they had this this ability to respond and to make sure that their presence was felt and that they could influence things.
0: Dara, how did that happen? Um, uh, Given that the organisation had been decimated and it was in exile, how did it so quickly uh, get to a point where it was able to sit in three meetings or have representatives in three meetings at once?
1: Because it was sent into exile, but it was never, you know, it never stopped as such. So, you know, even before the uprising began, the Brotherhood's leadership was still having monthly meetings and when the brotherhood went into into exile, it mostly went into Iraq and also um, Jordan at the time. Now it spread a lot further since a lot in Saudi Arabia as well. But you know, it was it, its members were sent into these exile communities, um, and you know they, they they remained quite cohesive in exile. I had this one brotherhood member. Uh, you know, he he'd been based in Iraq, and his. Uh, you know, he'd done a university degree and everything there. The Brotherhood had supported him and supported, a, you know, a huge number of their members to go through university and to rebuild their lives after they had to leave Syria. And they also provide pensions to a large number of members as well. So, you know, people are in that fold. But this one Brotherhood member said to me, you know, my dad, who was based in Syria, got sick and he was, um, you know, he was taken to Jordan for treatment. and my And I couldn't go to Jordan at the time, but, you know, the Brotherhood – Uh, members they went and they sat with him they spent a whole week with him in hospital they treated him like he was their father you know and so there's sort of this sense of of camaraderie within the brotherhood um you know in exile that was able to stay in many ways cohesive
0: right right i guess that that tells you about the the power of the organization and the the legacy of it even after
1: well also the power of what they'd lost and the power sure, of, yeah. um, you know, what they were, what they're up against.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course.
1: You know, I, I mean, a lot of these people, and I had to talk about in the book, became quite wealthy in exile.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, so it's not that they became that, you know, were, that everyone was reliant on the brotherhood organization, but it did remain this community of exiles, you know, against a regime that, that none of them could return home to. I mean, in as of 1980, being a member of the brotherhood was a capital offense. there was no you know there was no choice you weren't going
0: to sneak in harm yeah yeah of course so as as the events in Syria took on a a violent turn what what role did the brotherhood play in this then given what you've said in the in the book and what you've just identified as this this fundamental tension about how to respond to violence and how to how to um take a call about violence what what did it do
1: so, it, it, it couldn't. For a long time, it just did not know how to respond. And, you know, the, the Syrian uprising became to mili- uh, began to mil- militarise very early. You know, in the summer of 2011, it was already showing signs of militarization, And the Brotherhood's leadership at that point just couldn't um, make a decision. And, uh, you know, soon after, they came out and said, we're not going to be supporting uh, violence. And I think that's probably, a, a you know, a result of their their history and you know like they've spent 30 years telling everyone we are not violent this was an aberration this was you know because we were forced into this defensive position this is not who we are and you know suddenly to turn around and say well actually no we support this was you know that that was going to be a really difficult thing for the brotherhood to navigate so I mean very quickly it said we don't support violence um but I mean it became as uh, the uprising proceeded and as you know, things did get more violent and the the Syrian regime became more and more brutal. It was these groups on the ground that were making the sacrifices that were being, you know, were able to make a claim to legitimacy. I mean, the brotherhood probably of any group in Syria historically has paid more of a price than anyone for its opposition to the brotherhood. But by 2011, that claim was quickly disappearing. Um, So, I mean, it did eventually... uh, endorse uh the shields um and did support those but you know that was kind of a piecemeal decision uh you know other brotherhood members in their individual capacities were involved in a lot of groups and have been quite successful in some of the other groups but i mean one um one brotherhood member who's really close to the leadership said to me look you know like we've got we've got resources yeah we you know we're able to respond to to the political uprising, but, you know, wars cost a huge amount of money. We don't have that kind of money. And particularly when golf money, particularly Saudi money started becoming, uh, you know, the, the major contributor to the uprising, um, you know, Saudi wouldn't go near the brotherhood groups. And so being associated with the brotherhood actually became a problem
0: for yeah, groups on the
1: ground. So, you know, very quickly, that sort of fell apart for the brotherhood. I mean, in the long run depending on the you know how the history of the, the Syrian war is written this may this may work out for the brotherhood i mean part of the fa- the reason that yeah you know, it was so cautious when it was working with groups it was so careful because its relationship with the fighting vanguard historically had caused it so much pain and it was that that, that led it to eventually endorsing violence And so it was so careful in which groups it worked with that, you know, most of the, many of the groups the Brotherhood worked with, um, you know, were groups that would later get, um, you know, CIA vetting or that sort of thing. You know, so there was sort of the most main, a lot of the mainstream groups in the uprising. So in that regard, it's not associated with human rights abuses in the same way that a lot of the other groups in the uprising are associated with. Um, But it's also, you know, was often called things like the, uh, you know, the opposition of the hotels or that sort of thing, because, you know, while people on the ground in Syria were suffering, the brotherhood was seen as, you know, bickering in Istanbul or Doha and not making a significant contribution on the ground.
0: Of course. Dara, we've taken up a great deal of your time already, but if I may ask one final question. Please. Please where does the brotherhood go from now where is it in in syrian politics right now and and what is its future looking like
1: so the brotherhood's going to have some problems um you know quite a lot of challenges i guess on its horizon i mean one of which is the fact that and this i mean the brotherhood has you know it's been in exile for a long time and it's long had you know, it's long been in exile in countries that have, you know, politics that put it in difficult positions, and certainly, um, you know, much of the Brotherhood is currently based in Turkey, and with, uh, you know, the current Turkish uh, intervention in northern Syria, this, you know, this is, this, these are difficult times for members of the Syrian opposition as a whole. Uh, the Brotherhood itself is going to have troubles. There were, um, you know, throughout my research, I was speaking to members of the Brotherhood, younger members of the Brotherhood in particular, who are very frustrated at the Brotherhood leadership. And these are, um, you know, the Brotherhood has always been a, a movement of intellectuals You know, it's had high rates of university, um, you know, degrees and that sort of thing. And the the children of the Brotherhood are the same. So the children of the Brotherhood are highly educated, highly articulate, and they know the Brotherhood inside out because, you know, they've lived their lives in that. And these Brotherhood members, some of whom were uh, members of the leadership, you know, in parts of the middle generation as well, uh, expressed serious frustration at the way that the Brotherhood's leaders had uh, led the uprising. Some of the mem- a lot of the members involved in the Brotherhood right now are the leaders who were still involved in the 1980s. Um, a lot of these people argue that you know we're the ones that paid the sacrifice. We're the ones that did the really hard times in the 1980s, so we've earned our position here. I would probably argue that you know the Syrian uh, that the younger generation, you know many of the many of the people I met had never been to Syria before 2011 because they'd been forced to grow up completely outside their homeland um so i would argue that's that's a pretty big sacrifice as well and they certainly felt that um but i think going forward this is going to be the brotherhoods this is going to be the frustration it will be the frustration of the youth and young people who have not who felt that the brotherhood didn't respond well and that they their brotherhood's leadership failed to hand over power to people that may have been more responsive and more um agile in responding to the conflict and so i mean this is the syrian opposition as a whole now is going to face some really serious questions about where it went so badly wrong and the brotherhood is is not going to be immune from that criticism particularly within itself
0: of course dara thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us it's been absolutely fascinating and i i really love the book i hope people go out and, and get hold of it right now i believe there's still a uh, a MISA 20% off discount code available. Um, I saw you tweeting about that earlier and we've not even had a chance yes, to talk about it. it's a
1: about... gift none of your relatives want for Christmas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I liked that. That was, that was a good one. Um, and we've not even had a chance to talk about your work on Iran with Shara Makbarzadeh, but um, we'll have to do that another time, I think, given the Next depth time. we've gone into in this. But thank you so much. I really appreciate your time
1: thank you for your
0: time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening as always until next time.